whole Bible is someone is coming. When we turn to the Old Testament, we read prophet after prophecy that someone is coming. And in the New Testament, we find that someone has come. In the Old Testament, the someone who was to come was to be a descendant of Abraham. And all the nations and all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. We see that the king would sit upon the throne of David and his kingdom would reign forever. That he was to be not only a ruler, he was to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And of course we know in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. In fact, as we noticed last week, some 332 Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection were all fulfilled by him. So we find in the New Testament that someone is here, has come, and is coming again. In fact, during Jesus' public ministry, he promised to come again and again and again. And the way I count it, he promised to come about six different ways, including the first time when he came. And this morning, I'd like for us to look at those six different ways he promised to come, counting the first one where he's already here, that is, in his public ministry. He made the statement in Matthew 16 and 28, There be those who stand nearby who shall in no wise taste of death until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. There's one way. Jesus is that Son of Man, and he says that he's going to come during that generation. And they shall see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. In Mark 9 and 1, he just puts it a little bit differently. He says, there are those who stand nearby who shall in no wise taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus was coming with his kingdom. And that kingdom was coming with power. When we turn to Acts 2, we find where that coming was fulfilled. The kingdom of God came into existence when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, bringing the power to reveal God's will, to lead men in sin, those who had crucified Christ, to a realization that they needed Christ and their, his salvation, and obeyed. And there were 3,000 who understood. They didn't see Jesus personally. He was not personally visible. But he came in the salvation, in the sending of the Holy Spirit, in fulfilling the many promises that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so it was fulfilled in his coming. Another way that he promised to come was to come in the destruction of the temple. Let me read from one of the passages, promises. In Matthew 10, verse 23, he's preparing his disciples. He's talked about how they were to go out in the limited commission. That is, to only the Jews, not to the Samaritans, not to any Gentile. And then he expanded their going with the commission we call the Great Commission. 
to include the whole world. And he says in verse 23, But when they persecute you in this city, flee unto the next. For verily I say unto you that ye shall not have gone through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. Jesus is talking about coming again. Here he was in his public ministry. He's not talking about coming and establishing the kingdom. He's talking about coming later in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Bringing to an end Judaism as far as he could in that demonstration. In Luke 21, the same subject is before the Lord. And let me read just a few verses. I'll start with verse 31 and 32. Even so ye also, when ye see these things coming to pass, now he's talking to that generation, things they're going to see, Know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh. I'll come back to that in a minute. The next verse, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all things be accomplished. Well, we studied the context not long ago in our Sunday morning class in Luke. But let me just look at one or two more verses. Look up at verse 20 and 21. All these things, the thing he's been talking about. But when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that her desolation is at hand. Then let them that are in Judea flee into the mountains, and let them that are in the midst of her depart out, and so forth. So he's not talking about the end of the world. But he's talking about his coming. His coming not visibly, that is, they wouldn't see him personally, but they would see his great glory. They would see his majesty when they saw his power and the wrath and his vengeance that he wrought upon his people that were unbelievers and that rejected Jesus Christ. So this is a different kind of coming than coming to establish the church or coming at the end of the world. Maybe you ought to look at Matthew 24 and 33. Because Matthew 24, at least the first part, is dealing with the very same uh, question. <clears throat> Even so ye also, when ye see all these things, know ye that he is nigh, even at the doors. He is nigh. Some versions say it is nigh. Now if it's talking about it, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Because you can just read in that context. If you're out in the fields, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't pick up your coat. Don't go back and get your personal belongings. Get out of there. Not the end of the world. The destruction of Jerusalem. Or if it's talking about he is nigh, it means Jesus. In his coming. Not visibly. But in his wrath to destroy Jerusalem. They shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what they'll see. That great power and that glory. And as we noticed in our Bible class in the Old Testament, there are other scriptures that talk about God coming on the clouds of wrath and judgment. And that's the same in this scripture. Then there's another kind of coming. 
And this would be coming in judgment. And we've already talked about one type of coming in judgment. And also it coming in aid or in discipline. I've got some examples. Let me look first at 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. He's not talking about the end of the world. And if it begin first at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Well, there's a few things I want to notice. One, he says, if the righteous are scarcely saved, that cannot be talking about when he comes the last day. Because those who shall be saved shall be saved by the grace of God, and it cannot be referred to as scarcely saved. God does not scarcely save anybody by his grace. The salvation he's talking about here is the deliverance that they'll have when the Romans come at Jerusalem and in Judea. Peter himself said in 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Give the more diligence, my brethren, to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, and he just mentioned some seven Christian graces, they were to grow in these things. If you do these things, you shall never stumble, but thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's the contrast. That's talking about when we enter into the eternal phase of the kingdom. When we go home to heaven to be with God. We're going to be richly supplied that entrance. It's by the grace of God. It's not by righteous just barely making it. Scarcely being saved. Now when we turn back to 1 Peter 4, we can find by the context that he's talking about this end of Judaism that's coming. Look at verse 7, same chapter. But the end of all things is at hand. Well now, how do we take that all things? 2,000 years ago. Did all things come to an end 2,000 years ago? Well, was Peter mistaken? Did the Holy Spirit misdirect Peter and inspire him to write that? No. We just need to observe what he's talking about in the context. The end of Judaism. And for the Jews that didn't accept Christ, that was the end of all things. The old covenant was nailed to the cross and replaced by a new covenant. And when he sent the Roman army upon Jerusalem, that was the end of the priesthood, of the animal sacrifices, and of all that was involved in that type of Levitical worship. That was the end. Verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials among you, which cometh upon you to prove you as though a strange thing happened unto you, but inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, he's preparing them. First Peter is written to Christians to encourage them through these trials and things. that were, He said, don't think it strange that you're going to have to endure these things. You need to be prepared. Accept them when they come. But inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice that at the revelation of his glory 
also ye may rejoice with exceeding joy. If ye are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are ye, because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God resteth upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler in other men's matters, but if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin. That's the context. And that's where we started. No, he's talking about coming in judgment. <clears throat> when we turn over to Revelation 2 and 3, those two chapters, where the Lord is addressing himself to seven churches of Asia. And he talks about his coming in different ways in, I think, most all of these epistles. The one he wrote to the Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, Or else I come unto thee, and remove thy candlestick out of its place. What's the Lord saying to the church in Ephesus? I will come unto thee, and I will remove the candlestick out of its place. The candlestick, or the lampstand, represents identity of the church. And what's the Lord threatening here? Well, divine recognition was to be withdrawn if they did not repent. They would lose their identity as God's people. The Lord would come and remove that identity. That's another way of his coming. Or writing to the church in Pergamum, chapter 2 again, still in Revelation, verse 16. Repent, therefore, or else I come to thee quickly. Well, that couldn't have been the end of the world. He didn't come quickly in that way. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now he's talking about some Nicolaitans, the Balaamites, and their teaching. And the church was being lax and putting up with that false teaching. The church must repent, the Lord says, of its lax attitude toward this compromising spirit and take a firm stand against it. Now, if that was true then, it must be true today. The church cannot afford to tolerate such a disposition as manifested by these few. They were just putting up with it to keep peace. So the swift coming of the Lord will be to make war against the church by executing judgment against the unfaithful, compromising children of God. They were guilty of reducing the Lord's teaching to just simply human philosophy and carnal religion. You can see why the Lord would be coming in wrath. Well, we can think either they repented. Most folks don't think so. If they didn't repent, then the judgment was complete. The Lord did come. For neither the Nicolaitans or the Balaamites left documents or institutions behind them. And then to the church in Thyatira, chapter 2 again, in verse 25, the Lord who's writing these epistles says, Nevertheless, that which ye have, hold fast till I come. Not his last day coming, not coming whenever I shall see him, but during their lifetime. 
Hold fast till I come. Well, what's that mean? That which you have. Hold to the moral life. Required to keep the faith. He speaks of coming to aid the church or to judge the impenitent. Sardis, chapter 3 and verse 3. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And so his coming here again refers to his coming in judgment. Coming for discipline or coming for aid. And we better stop. There's another example in chapter 3 of the church of Philadelphia. And so here's an example of the Lord promising to come as a threat, as punishment, in wrath, or in discipline for the church, or an aid to the church. But let's look at our fifth or sixth example, whichever we have you on count this. Coming in discipline, coming to aid, coming in judgment, we count that maybe two or three kinds of coming. But the one we're most familiar with and should be conscious of is that for his coming in the final judgment. You remember when the disciples were there near Bethany on the Mount of Olivet? And Jesus was talking to them and then he just began to ascend into heaven. And there were two angels standing nearby in dazzling apparel. And they said, You men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that you behold going into heaven shall so come in like manner as you behold going into heaven. He was received up in a cloud. They said that's where he's coming back. In like manner. The final judgment is when he comes Everybody's raised from the dead. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, 16 and 17, we'll start. It says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And they that are dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the, in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And verse 18, Wherefore, comfort you one another with these words. The Lord's coming. And those who are still alive when He comes are going to be changed. Paul said in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, at the last trump, 1 Corinthians 15 and about 51 and 2. And those that are dead... They're not going to be forgotten. They're not going to be second in line. They're going to be raised first. And then we that are alive shall together with them meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be, not coming to the earth. He's coming to receive us, and then the earth will be destroyed. The final coming. Didn't Jesus said, you believe in God? Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. Here's His coming. I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am there, ye may be also. The Lord's coming. His final coming, where we will be with Him forever. 
In a Bible class one time, I think I may have mentioned this once, <clears throat> we thought we'd ask everybody, what would you like to be doing when the Lord comes that final time? If you're still alive and the Lord comes. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, some said they'd like to be in the assembly worship like we are right now when he comes. Someone else said they'd like to be at home with a family devotion. You know, all the families together and they're praying together and reading God's word together. Another said uh, he or she would like to be praying to God when he comes. Someone else said they would like to be in a Bible class. Another, they'd like to be talking to someone about their soul, which would be too late for that soul, but still that doing God's will. Well, that's an interesting question. Let me just ask you, and I've thought about it, and I'm sure you have, what would you like to be doing when Jesus comes that final time? Because that's when the judgment takes place. Do we want him to find us in sin? Committing some sin? Or living not having repented of some sin or sins? Do we want him to come and find us like that? Well, no. Here are some ways I think we all want to be found when he comes. In Philippians 3... In verse 8 and 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ. He said, I've, I've given up all of the advantages, I'm using my own words now, that I had in Judaism, that I might find Christ. And I look upon those as just refuge, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in Him. And the reason why, if we're not found in Him, what? Well, we'll be found outside of him. And that's to be lost, isn't it? We want to be found in him. Because apart from him, we're separated. Paul is writing to some Christians in Ephesians 2, verse 12. He's reminding them of their spiritual state before they became Christians. He said, you were at that time separate from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers under the covenant of the promise, without God and having no hope in the world. And we don't want to be found like that when Jesus comes. Without Christ, strangers under the covenants of the promise, what's the promise? The promise is eternal life and heaven. We're strangers, or they were, and all who are outside of Christ are. And so we need to be found in Jesus, serving him faithfully. Romans 8 and 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 3.27 tells us that all that were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. That's how we get into Christ. And that's where we want to be found and stay. I want to be found not sleeping when he comes. Let me read this passage if you will turn, if you wish. In Matthew 13. Telling his disciples they need to be ready, they need to be prepared, they need to be watchful. Mark 13, I'm sorry. I didn't think Matthew sounded right. In Mark 13, he's talking 
about coming. And it's on this point he's talking about his final coming. Because in verse 30 he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things be accomplished down to that verse. Now there's a transition. He's talking about his coming, the final time that we're talking about now. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day, the last day, or that hour, knoweth no one, not even the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not when the time is. It is as when a man, sojourning in another country, having left his house, and given authority to the servants, to each one his work, commanded also the porter to watch. Watch therefore, for ye know not when the Lord of the house cometh whether at even, that is in the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crowing, early in the morning, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. There was this little boy who had a great hankering for a wristwatch. Some of his buddies had a watch, and though he couldn't tell time all that good, he thought he needed one. And so he pestered his mom, then he pestered his dad, and it got so bad they just had to tell him, Now, son, we're not going to buy you a watch now. So stop begging for one. When you're old enough and we think it's all right, we'll get you one. Don't say another word about a watch. That evening, they have a family devotion at the supper table. Everybody memorizes scripture and they you know, have prayer together. And so each one was saying, their memorized scripture verse. Well, when it came to this, this boy, his, this was his verse. He said, And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Well, he didn't get it. <laughs> and of course, he took it out of context. The Lord is telling us that we need to be on our toes. We need to be cautious, watchful, prepared, alert, wide awake. In fact, that's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6, talking about the same coming. So then let us not sleep, as do the rest, but let us watch and be sober. I mentioned asking the Bible class what they'd like to be doing when the Lord did come. Well, there was another brother in the class who said he wanted to be sleepy. Well, Jesus says here, don't be sleepy. So we just had to ask, I said... Uh, would you mind telling us why you want to be sleeping when the Lord comes? And with a grin on his face, he said, well, yeah, I'll tell you. He said, the last thing I do each night before I go to sleep, I ask God to forgive me of all of my sins. And if he comes while I'm asleep, well, I'm sure I'll, I'll be all right. I won't be committing sin in, in my sleep like I would during the daytime, perhaps. Well, of course, that's not the same kind of sleeping the Lord's warning us against here. And I see his point. But really, 1 John 1, 7 tells us we don't need to worry about that kind of thing. And I won't quote it right now, but let's go on to another. I want to be found walking in truth when Jesus comes. The Apostle John was writing to the elect lady, 
Second John. And he said in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found certain of thy children walking in truth. As a matter of great rejoicing, John said. Well, to walk in truth means to live in truth. To be living according to God's revealed word. And he saw this sister's children, years later, walking in truth. Sometimes we may see somebody we've not known for years. I think this is especially true for preachers. They'll, they'll preach for a while someplace. They'll move over. And you know, you don't lose contact with brethren. And so years go by and you'll see another family you've known for years. And it's a great joy to learn about their still walking in truth. We went back and held a meeting at a place we had preached. I think it had been 25 years before. And it was sad to learn about some of the children who were just growing up when we were there. Some of them who had just obeyed the gospel. No longer walking in truth. But on the other hand, there were those who were still faithful. Still serving the Lord. And that brought great joy. But when we reach our three score and ten, or by reason of strength, four score, we certainly want to be walking in truth. Because if the Lord doesn't come before we leave, we're going to meet him as soon as we leave. And that's how we want to be found. A brother Ford, and I cannot think of his first name. I've got some of his tracks, and you may have some know the man. From Tennessee, I know. <clears throat> He's written a track. And it's entitled, Don't Die on Third. Now, baseball fans recognize that baseball jargon. He evidently was a man interested in a lot of sports because a lot of his illustrations in his tracks had to do with sports. Don't die on third. We think about baseball. Here's a man who gets on first base, maybe he walked, maybe he got a hit. Maybe he got hit by the ball, pitcher's ball, whatever. He got on first base. And maybe advanced to second base. He might have stolen second base. Or somebody might have gotten a hit and he just went one base or whatever. Or maybe someone got a good single and he went all the way to third. And he's standing there waiting for somebody to knock him in. Or to send a, a long fly ball way out on the other side where he'll have time to tag up and get back to home base. He sees home base. That's the last place he's got to touch before he can score. And until he gets to home base, he's not scored. And if you listen to baseball, you know that happens many times. Somebody dies on third, maybe first or second, but they don't score. Of course, Brother Ford's point was, Christians, don't die on third. All the effort that you put forth to get to the third base won't help you one bit if you don't score. If you're not faithful, Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Well, let me hurry on. <clears throat> How do we want to be found? Well, we want to be found not on third base, but walking in truth. And I want to be found, I'm sure you do, in peace, without spot, and blameless in his sight. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 14, Peter said, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things. What things, Peter? Well, he's just been talking about the coming of the Lord's day. Coming of the Lord. 
about the destruction of the world, the earth, the works, and all that is therein, about the appearance of the new heavens and the new earth. He says, Wherefore, seeing that you look for these things, give diligence that you be found in peace, that is, peace with God and with man, without spot, that is, undefiled, and blameless, not condemned. If there is sin in our life, we need to correct it. We need to seek God's forgiveness so that we can be found in peace with Him. If you're guilty of sin, that will keep you out of heaven. You need to repent. And you want to be found written in the book of life. Revelation 20 and verse 15, If any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And we understand that expression. The lake of fire is another picture for hell. If any was not found written in the book of life. Their names are not enrolled in heaven. Remember the Lord sent the 70 out to preach. Gave them power to perform miracles. They came back rejoicing. It said, Lord, even the evil spirits were subject unto us. And what does the Lord say? This is in Luke 10, 17 and verse 20. He says, rejoice not in this that the spirits are in subjection to thee, but that your names are written in heaven. That's the most important thing to God. And it should be to us. I want to be found with my name written in heaven. And how do I get that? I have to obey the gospel. I have to have all my sins forgiven by the Lord by obeying his will. Peter said, repent ye and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And until I do that, I don't have peace with God. My sins have not been forgiven. I'm still in them. And if He comes and I'm in my sins, I'm going to be lost. And I don't want to be found in my sins. And I don't think anyone here does either. If you've not obeyed the gospel, we're going to sing a song of invitation to encourage you to do that. If you have some other need as a child of God, then we stand ready to encourage you and to help you do whatever is necessary. We all want to go to heaven. But we all need to be ready when he comes. If there's anything that you need to do, would you do it now as we stand and sing?